Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 18. And uh, we will be looking at the Apostle Paul's ministry in Corinth. Acts chapter 18. And I'll begin reading the first 17 verses of this chapter. Acts chapter 18. And I'll begin in verse 1. So, since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful and reverent attention to the reading of God's Word. Verse 1. After these things, he, that's Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius... Now, Claudius is the emperor of the Roman Empire. Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. This is the word bima that we find in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We all stand before the Bema seat of Christ. Well, there's an earthly Bema. That's a judgment seat. Same word. Saying, verse 13, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. Apparently after Crispus, the leader of the synagogue became a believer, he was probably removed from the synagogue, no longer the leader. So now here's a new leader by the name of Sosthenes heading up this accusation against Paul. 
Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Okay, so where we are, we're in the second missionary journey. Okay, Paul has started here at Antioch. He went through Galatia. He couldn't go up into Bithynia. The Spirit of God said, no, you can't go north. Couldn't go south into Asia. Remember, God said no. And so he ends up in Troas. And there he has the Macedonian call. So the Macedonian man says, come to us. So he gets on a boat. He crosses the northern part of the Aegean Sea. Ends up in Philippi. Ministers there. So there he's going to be beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Then he's going to go down to Thessalonica and basically get run out of town by the civil authorities. He's going to end up in Berea. Same thing's going to happen there. So either walks or takes a ship down to Athens. See where Athens is. And he spent some time there. Not much fruit in Athens. And so now he heads over to Corinth. So basically, this is a journey of about 50 miles to Corinth. And in all this, what we see, the Apostle Paul was a man who is driven by a passion to serve Christ. He was a man full of godly zeal, and yet he was still a man. And it's interesting that uh, with all of the persecution that he has experienced up to this time, he had received a beating, imprisonment, rejection, ridicule, and indifference at Athens, where they called him a seed picker and someone who's proclaiming foreign deities. And so he, he, there's not a great reception in Athens, so he leaves and he's on his way to Corinth. What's interesting is later on, uh, when he's in Ephesus, he will write a letter to the Corinthians and he'll say, when I came to you, I came in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. So now we know that when he's on his way from Athens to Corinth, he is coming in weakness, fear, and in much trembling. So the Apostle Paul was, was a man like we are. Yeah, he was uniquely gifted. He had uniquely seen the risen Lord. He was a very special godly man, certainly. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And yet he's still a man. Why did he say, why did he write to them saying that when I came to you, I came in weakness and fear and in much trembling? Well, obviously the weakness could be just from the pressures of ministry. It could be that from all of the abuse, the beatings he had. Remember, he was stoned in his first missionary journey. That his physical stamina was beginning to be tested his emotional strain was beginning to build up within his heart. He's a man. You know, he's not a superman. He's a spirit-filled man, but he's still a man. And he's probably wrestling with the concern for the churches that were up in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Galatia. And he's just, he's, he's carrying probably all of these concerns within his soul. He probably has aches and pains from some of the beatings that he has. So now he's on his way to Corinth. And I think what we learn from this, and also he's by himself. 
He's alone. So he doesn't have the other companions with him yet. Silas and Timothy have not yet joined up with him. They were left behind in Berea. So he's on his way to Corinth. He's weak. He's full of fear and in much trembling. And I think we just can see that uh, the type of ministry, the putcher, you know, the the metal to the pedal type of a heart that he had in serving Christ certainly had a physical and emotional and spiritual toll upon him. The ministry can oftentimes be full of abuse and conflicts that wear you down. Uh, Spurgeon, in his counsel to young men uh, training for the ministry, spoke about the the minister's fainting fits. That sometimes because of just the wear and tear of the ministry, ministers will drop out. They'll burn out. They'll go in through, through fainting fits. And, and Paul is, is, I think, is kind of hurting on his way. He's very honest and open about it. And so we may ask, okay, why the fear? Why the weakness? Why the much trembling? Again, I think, again, you look at the past. You see where he's been, what he's done, what all he's carrying in terms of his, his soul concern for the believers and, and uh, what they're going through. Is the church going to survive in, in Philippi? And so he's wearing all these concerns. So he's looking to the past. That's having a toll on him. But I think he's also looking to the future. And he knows the next stop is Corinth. And Corinth had a reputation. And I think there is a, when he says, I'm going, I, I, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I think part of that was because he knows the next stop on the map is Corinth. And Corinth is not a place that is going to be easily receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that any place is, but Corinth has a reputation. What I'd like to do, because whenever we study Scripture, it's always helpful to study it in the cultural context in which it occurred. And I think it will be helpful to kind of walk through and learn a little bit more about Corinth and why it was posed some very unique challenges for the Apostle Paul that maybe even contributed to his fear and much trembling. I want to kind of start just with some general information about Corinth. It uh, was made the capital of Achaia, the Roman province. So in this sense, it was even a little more important than Athens was. Athens was kind of the intellectual center, but Corinth was the capital of the Roman province. The city was originally founded in about 8th century B.C. It had been destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C. It was looted of all of its treasures, because of its location, it was a it, uh, very strategic location with the two ports on both sides. A lot of traffic, a lot of commerce, a lot of business, a lot of money. But when the Romans sacked it in 146 B.C., they looted it of all of its treasures. They pulled down all the buildings. They burnt everything they could. And uh, they executed the men. They sold the women and the children into slavery. And then a hundred years later, Julius Caesar in 46 B.C. began to carry on a rebuilding project in Corinth, made it a Roman colony, made it the capital of Achaia, the southern Roman province of Greece. 
and he populated it with a third slaves, a third freemen, and a, and a third of uh, those who were uh, former slaves. They had been slaves, but had somehow earned their, their freedom. And I think you can see this because there are so many slaves in Corinth that when Paul writes his letter to Corinth, there's a lot in there about slaves. Uh, particularly, you see that in chapter 7 and chapter 12 and places like that. And so it reflects the culture of what's going on. The grace of God apparently saved a number of those slaves. In Paul's day, there was about 150,000 people inside the city walls, which city wall went for six miles around the city. is about twice as big as Athens. But it was a very thriving commercial city, a cosmopolitan city, because of all the traffic that was going through the area. Uh, one of the things I want to just kind of briefly tell you why the Corinth was such a commercial success was because of these two gulfs, the Corinth, Corinth Gulf on the north, Saronic Gulf on the south. And back in Paul's day, there was a, a road that was built about 600 B.C. called the Diolkos. And what they would do, uh, it was very dangerous to sail your ship around this uh, peninsula. Very dangerous. The seas were very unpredictable. A lot of shipwrecks. So what they would do is they would stop in this port. They would unload their cargo. They would put it on carts. And they would go down this road all the way to the other gulf. And then the ship with the lighter load would try to make it around the peninsula and end up here and then either reload it or put it on other ships. Even smaller ships could be carted across this the old cause. So it brought in a lot of wealth to Corinth, a lot of taxes, a lot of toll money, and it was something that uh, really helped the success of the city of Corinth because of its strategic location. So the ancient, the old cause, this is, they, you can still find remnants of it. You can see grooves in the road where the, the carts with the wheels on it would carry small boats across this isthmus that connected the, these two parts of, of Greece. And uh, again, it, tremendous, it contributed tremendously to the wealth, the money, the prosperity of the city. And it saved a lot of effort from trying to go the 200 miles around the peninsula with the potential of great loss. Uh, finally, in 1893, they actually dug a canal through here because it's such a strategic location. And you can actually see that in this overhead map. You can see the canal, but you can see the two bodies of water. And again, Corinth is just a few miles to the west. Uh, one of the things at Corinth was, uh, here's the ancient city of Corinth. There's a main city with a mountain in the back. That mountain is called the Acrocorinth. That was kind of where the fortress of the city was located up at the top. Most of these uh, larger cities had this kind of a background. The, the Acropolis in Rome, you remember? And this is the Acrocorinth. And on the top was walls. There were temples. There were uh, civil buildings, government buildings up there. But uh, Corinth was also famous for its bronze. And here's actually a bronze helmet from the 5th century B.C., 
So ever since their founding, they were known for, for their bronze. Uh, they're also known for their bronze mirrors. Uh, this was all the fashion ladies to have a bronze mirror uh, in the morning. And uh, obviously, it has to be polished bronze. You're not going to see anything out of this. If it was very, very polished, again, you're only going to you're not going to be anything like the modern mirrors of today, right? But it reminds us when Paul wrote in First Corinthians thirteen twelve, he's writing to Corinth, who obviously they they prize these things, and he said, "For now we see as in a mirror dimly, but but then face to face." And you can understand that comment because of these bronze mirrors that were very famous and uh, there in, in the Corinthian area. This bronze was so world uh, famous that uh, uh, Josephus writes that one of the gates in the Jerusalem temple, which was called the beautiful gate, which was the most ornate gate of all the gates around the temple in Jerusalem, was made of Corinthian bronze. And it had the, the, the attraction of being the most valued gate of all of them. Even more valuable than the other gates that were lined with silver and gold. The Corinthian bronze gate in Jerusalem was valued as being the most uh, uh, valuable. Called the beautiful gate. Well, we also see that uh, in Corinth there was a lot of religion. And this is maybe one of the things that contributed to Paul's fear and much trembling because of the religious character of Corinth. Now, Corinth uh, worshipped the god Poseidon, the god of the sea, uh, also called Neptune. That's the Roman name for Poseidon. And it's due to the two ports because there's a lot of sailors that came into Corinth. There's a lot of sea merchants that came into Corinth. So if it, all, it was only appropriate that they would <clears throat> worship the god Poseidon. And he kind of became uh, one of the most important gods of the city. But there was another one that was even more popular. And that's the, uh, the goddess Aphrodite or called Venus. Is a Roman name. She was the goddess of love. She was the protector deity of the city of Corinth. There are at least three temples dedicated to her in, in Corinth. The most famous was on top of the Acre Corinth. And the, uh, the worship of Aphrodite, of course, as you could imagine, involved a lot of prostitution, a lot of immorality. Uh, this is 1900 feet tall, this Acre Corinth. And the major temple of the three temples dedicated to her in the city was up at the very top. It was said that there were a thousand slave women who served at the temple and roamed the city streets by night in the red light districts as prostitutes. Homosexuality was rampant. Sexual promiscuity became proverbial for Corinth. So throughout the Mediterranean Empire, the, the region, if you spoke of, of Corinthianizing something, you're talking about committing an, an immorality. That's how renowned, that's their reputation. Corinth was an evil sin city. It had that reputation for sexual immorality, for homosexuality. And it's interesting that on the next time Paul comes to Corinth. 
when he spends time there, he's going to write the letter to the Romans from Corinth. This is not this trip. This is another trip. And in Romans chapter 1, what does Paul write about the sinfulness and depravity of mankind? That they turned away from the true God who has revealed Himself in, in creation and they have turned to worship idols. And he says as a result of that, God gave them over to the corrupting passions of their heart. That God gave them over to degrading passions of, of women who leave the natural function for another woman and men who leave the natural function for another man. And he is describing, he's writing this letter to the Romans in Corinth. And you can understand again, even from the letters that are coming out of Corinth, just the, 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 the immoral atmosphere in which the Apostle Paul was. And you can, you can kind of understand some of these insights in his letters based upon the wicked culture that he was in. So Corinth was kind of a sin city, a vanity fair. And if they ever needed the gospel, they needed the gospel. But you could see how it would run and be confrontational to their sinful lifestyles because of all the sailors, all the sea traffic, all the visitors into the city, all the immorality. And yet the Gospel will call them to repent and be holy and warn them that sexual immorality, that those who engage in that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you can find that in 1 Corinthians 6. And again, you understand it in light of what's going on in the city of Corinth. There's something else that's important about this religious aspect. By the way, this is, uh, this is the top of the Acre Corinth. This is the remains of the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. Not much of it's left. But you can just see the view that was up there. Uh, this is uh, down below in the city. This is a temple to Apollo, who is another one of the, the gods. Uh, this temple is in the middle of the city. There's kind of an overview picture to see just the size of it with some men standing up on the top. And here's a picture of the same temple against the background of the Acre Corinth. But they've also discovered in Corinth uh, certain plaques that speak of a Mechelum. A Mechelum. And that's a meat market. And this was very insightful because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 25, Paul uses this exact same word to speak of meat markets. Now what was happening was that in the city of Corinth, if you look at the city, you find some of the temples here. Nothing ever works when you want it to... Uh, let's see, can you see that? The temple of uh, Octavia, that was a big temple. There's another temple. Here's the temple of Apollo. And this building right here is where they had a bunch of meat markets. Now why is that significant? Because with all of these temples, uh, these gods had to be appeased. And you appease the gods by bringing gifts, you bring offerings, you bring sacrifices. So a lot of animals being sacrificed. And a lot of the meat from these animals could not be consumed by the worshipers. Maybe there's too much of it. So it would be brought to these McKellums and it would be sold to the public. It would actually be a meat market. 
And this raised a lot of issues for the believers in Corinth. Because they started began to wonder when they came out of the idolatry, is it a sin for me now to eat meat that was previously sacrificed to an idol? And Paul dealt with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 10, other places like that. And he actually refers to the Michelum in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 25. So you can kind of understand the context of some of the issues that were facing the Christians living in the city of Corinth. Another issue that was uh, interesting is just uh, a lot of the... um, This is actually a theater uh, in Corinth. So a lot of entertainment, a lot of that kind of stuff going on. It could hold 15,000 people. Again, this is the main street going into the city of Corinth that ran all the way to the northern port. And it ended up right smack dead middle in the middle of Corinth. So a lot of those goods are being pumped right into the into the city. It's like a, a, a an artery of a bloodline just going into the city, feeding it with all of this these goods and commerce and business. This is a very famous fountain, the Perrine uh, fountain that uh, comes from a natural spring that provided a lot of the water supply. Beautiful. You can see some of the columns in the back. There's a portico that went all the way around this this beautiful pool in the middle. Uh, but anyway, we go back to the uh, the overview of the city. And outside of the city, there is a, a, a temple basically called the Asclepion. And the Asclepion was a... Uh, a building that was dedicated to the uh, worship of. If I can, there we go. Was dedicated to the worship of Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing, and this is a very large area, but it's kind of like a hospital. It's like the first-century medical clinics of their day. And they, if someone was sick, they would go to the Asclepion. And here you have dining rooms, you have bathing facilities, dormitories, theater, other structures. And they would go and, and seek the healing of the gods. And primarily Asclepius. And again, this would be like a, a modern day medical clinic. Of course, they didn't have any of the benefits of our modern day medicine. But they used their superstitions. They used dream therapy. They did all this kind of stuff. And this was the part of the context of which Paul would bring the Gospel to turn people away from just these these types of idols that are really demons uh, pretending to be idols. We see, uh, interestingly enough, that there's a picture of the god Asclepius. Notice the snake. That was a symbol of the God of healing, God of medicine. And it's still the symbol used in medicine today. You can recognize that. Some things haven't changed. They still use that intertwine, that that serpent as a symbol for medicine. But whenever they, they got a benefit from their, they thought their God, Asclepius, and maybe their leg was hurting and then it got to feeling better. Or their hand was injured and then it got healed up. Well, then they would bring an offering back to the God and they would buy these these clay casts of a leg or a foot or a hand and they would offer it as a votive offering back to the God. That was part of their worship. And some people wonder if in Paul walking through the city, 
did not see these models of hands and feet and change that to, to envision it as a beautiful picture of the body of Christ that we're all a part of the body. Some are a hand, some are a foot. Remember 1 Corinthians 12? And they wonder if he maybe didn't get that uh, by viewing some of these things and reinterpreting it in a biblical context. So again, Corinth had a lot of that. A lot of sailors coming in sick. Maybe they had the coronavirus or whatever it might be coming from all over the world. And you got to do something. So you got to have a place to go and try to get healed up. But another big aspect of this that you see in Corinth that is reflected in Paul's writings is just they were a sports-crazy uh, culture. Kind of like we are today. Uh, races were popular. Horse races, chariot races, human races, wrestling, discus throwing, javelin throwing, long jumping, boxing, and pancration was one of the sports, which in reading about it is very similar to our modern day MMA fighting. I don't know if you ever follow any of the MMA stuff, but it's like no holds bar. You can, you can, uh, Hit with your fish, you can kick, you can wrestle, you can use choke holds. So they had, they had MMA all the way back then. And there were four major sporting events in the Greek country, and they were called the Panhellenic Games. And the four locations, one was Olympia, that's where the Olympics occurred every four years. And uh, this is very, very popular. The second most popular is the one in Isthmia, that's right next to Corinth. So Corinth would, would host a lot of the travelers, a lot of the stuff going on for those, for those uh, sporting events. And then Nemea and Delphi up where the Oracle of Delphi, where the Temple of Apollo and the, uh, the, the spirit of the snake and dwelt the woman who made oracles, you remember? So these are the four locations of the major sporting events of the day. What's interesting is that... Uh, Back then, of course, uh, this was all they had. So each time these events took place, the one in Isthmia took place over two years. I mean, this was, the whole world went, went to these things. I mean, today it would be like modern day Olympics and the World Cup and the Super Bowl and then throw in NASCAR because they had chariot races, right? And you mix all that together and, and you're about at the level of, of the general population viewing these four sporting events whenever they occurred. So they were very much into, into sports. What's also interesting is that the way they crowned their winners. You know, today the athletes get huge amounts of money and whatever it is they, they get endorsements. Well, back then they just got a wreath. You know, just just a wreath. If you won the event, you got a wreath. And in some of these locations, the the wreath would be made out of uh, olive branches, and another one a laurel branch, another one pine branches, and in Isthmia next to Corinth, where Paul was, it would be a wild celery. It would be made out. Your wreath would be made out of wild celery. Now it's interesting, the games were in the year A.D. 51. Paul was in Corinth in A.D. 51. So these games took place when he was there. But also, think of the wreath. Here you expand all this training, all this effort, 
and you win the race or whatever it is, you win the match. And, and what's your prize? <laughs> you know, a, a, a dried up celery wreath? Wilting? And notice, the Apostle Paul, when he writes, has all of these cultural things in mind. He, he understands their culture. He's trying to make these points of connection with them. So when he writes in 1 Corinthians 9.25 about us running the, the Christian race, he says, when they do it, they do it for a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. And you see how the Apostle Paul is drawing from the cultural events the uh, preoccupation of the people, the just the enthusiasm for the sports and drawing a parallel between that to the prize that we get by serving and following Christ. It's interesting, inside the city of, of Corinth, uh, some of the other games, they found these starting blocks, these stones with grooves cut out. You know how the... The, the sprinters have those, uh, what do you call them, the starting blocks? This is a starting block. And that was inside the Agora of the, of, uh, Corinth. The main event, the Isthmian Games occurred outside the city. But even in the city, they had all these kinds of things, uh, going on. Um, the starting blocks, if you can see the Agora on the left side, I've got a little, uh, Line to where they actually found the uh, the the uh, starting blocks there, but notice the apostle Paul, you know, understanding how sports crazy they were, appealed to the Christian life using that as an analogy so that they could better understand what's involved because everybody knew about sports. Look at what he says in First Corinthians nine twenty four. You do not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. So he's drawing a parallel between running in a race and the Christian life running in a race. Everyone who competes in the games, Isthmian games, Olympic games, exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Boxing was one of the big sports. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified. Because you could be disqualified if you cheated or didn't do the, the sport the way it was designed. In other places, Paul also Speaks of running in vain in his letter to the Galatians. To the Philippians, I press on toward the goal, the finish line, if you will, for the prize, the wreath of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, he says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And again to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have Finish the course, the race, the long race, the marathon race. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Not the perishable wreath, but the imperishable crown. And you can see how the Apostle Paul again was very sensitive 
to the lifestyle, the culture of which he was ministering to. And I think that's, he, he's drawing analogies from that uh, back to the Christian life. So in all of this, you find that the Apostle Paul is entering a city that was uh, full of immorality, totally distracted by sports, business, money, cosmopolitan city, commercial city galore, wealth, industry, all of this stuff going on. And I think when he says, you know what, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling, he knew the challenges ahead of him. Now in verse 2, back to Acts chapter 18, all of that's just in verse 1. In verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them because he was of the same trade and he stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. So he meets up with this married couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They have just been run out of Rome by Claudius the emperor because of, of uh, him thinking that uh, uh, they, the Jews and probably more in mind Christians were stirring up chaos and revolts within the city. But he meets up with them and because they're tent makers and Paul has been trained as a, as a tent maker, they began to work together. Now all teachers of the law back then were trained to have a trade in the first century. Paul was no exception. So he was raised and taught to make tents. Now you made tents out of goat leather or out of goat hair. And uh, this was important in Corinth because with all of the traffic coming in, all of the sailors coming in, all the sea merchants, many of them didn't want to pay the higher prices to stay in an inn. So they would buy a tent and they would live in tents outside the city. Particularly when the games would occur, you'd have thousands and thousands of people coming in. There may not even be enough room to hold them all, so they would stay in tents. So... Uh, making tents would have been a very profitable uh, type of a business back then. But the work was uh, not easy to make tents. Uh, most of those artisans who were tent makers and those kinds of, of uh, vocations had to work seven days a week without holidays to eke out a meager existence. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, when Paul writes a letter from Corinth back to the church at Thessalonica, he says, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. And we proclaim the Gospel of Christ. So the status of a tent maker was, uh, was kind of a low-class job. We would probably view it today kind of like a minimum wage job. It was not something that your little boy started dreaming of when they were little. You know, I'm going to grow up and you know, what do they say? Well, I want to be a policeman. I want to be a fireman. I want to be president of the United States. They, they're not saying, I want to be a tent maker. Because it was not a valued job in the sense that it was esteemed according to what I have read about it. In fact, in the second century, one author described such workers as an abominable class of men toiling from morning till night 
doubled over their tasks. And another one described it as vulgar work. And I think what we learned from this is the Apostle Paul as a young man was taught to this particular skill and he continued to work it when he needed to. But what does it say about him? It speaks to his humility. It speaks to him that there's no job too menial for him to, to, to do if God calls him to do it. It speaks of his willingness to, to work to pay his way. Uh, when he came into town, he didn't require a five-star hotel to pick him up in a limo and take him to the event and then get a big speaker's uh, salary as a result. But here is a man of God, highly trained, educated, who has seen visions and, and actually met Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus, who has been given incredible gifts, supernatural gifts, was called to be an apostle, and here he is over here working with his hands, sweating and laboring during the day. It certainly speaks to the humility and the humble heart that he had just like our Lord Jesus who was a carpenter. He was not ashamed to work in that regard. He would write later on to the Philippians, I know how to get along in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. He could experience all the the extremes of life. But for him, no doubt, regardless of what kind of job you have this morning, for the Apostle Paul, no doubt it was an opportunity to witness to people that other people wouldn't run into. And that's a way to view uh, our work. That's a way to view our vocation. Many ministers are bivocational. I was bivocational for about 15 years been in the ministry for 40 years and the first 15 I was bivocational and, and was greatly blessed and you know had many many blessings from God being bivocational but regardless of what you do use it as an opportunity for serving Christ use it as an opportunity for witnessing for Christ and I think that's the way Paul approached his work it wasn't so matter what he did but it gave him an opportunity to meet people and to have a witness to them. And, and we should embrace that same vision. In verse 4, we find that uh, he would work probably six days a week. And then he would be reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So every Sabbath he goes and he goes to the synagogue as is his pattern. He preaches and tries to teach them the Word of God. And then in verse 5, we find that uh, Silas and Timothy finally locate him and show up. They've been in Macedonia. They've been in Berea. One of them has probably gone back to maybe Thessalonica or Philippi. But now they've come down to Corinth where Paul is. And notice in verse 5, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So why was he able to do that? Well, they brought a money gift. They brought uh, financial support from the Macedonian churches. So now he could quit his daytime job and devote himself full-time to the ministry. They also came and they no doubt brought news that the churches have, are doing well. And this no doubt was an encouragement to him. 
In Proverbs 25, verse 25, it says, Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. And I think this is how God begins to encourage the Apostle Paul. He goes into Corinth in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Because of his past, worn down, and anticipating what he's going to face in Corinth with all the sin, all the craziness in the city. And yet, God begins to encourage His servant by bringing in Silas and Timothy. They share that the churches are surviving and they're thriving in in the backup of Macedonia. That's a great encouragement to him. Aquila and Priscilla will also be a great encouragement to him as they work together. Apparently, they are either believers when they come to Corinth or they are converted by Paul's ministry. But later on, Paul will write about Aquila and Priscilla that they were my fellow workers in Christ. That they risked their lives for me. So they no doubt were a great encouragement for the Apostle. So though he entered into Corinth with weakness, fear, and much trembling, yet God begins to encourage him with the arrival of Silas and Timothy. With that good news. And the other part is the financial support in verse 5. Uh, the Philippian church, when Paul was in Thessalonica, the Philippian church had sent him financial gifts several times to support him in the ministry. It's interesting, Paul normally when he was planting and establishing a church, wouldn't accept any money. But once he moved on, those churches, if they had a heart to send him money, then he would receive that. And these churches did, and they were very faithful to do that as well. He didn't take any money from the Christians at Corinth because there was an issue there with them. Uh, But he would certainly receive it from other churches. And they brought money from Macedonia, which enabled him to commit full-time to the ministry of the Word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was their Messiah. Verse 5. And then we find another way that God encourages His servant in verses 6-8. through The Jews began to resist and they blasphemed the Lord in the synagogue. So Paul shook out his garments in verse 6 saying, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. Now this expression, Your blood be on your own head, actually comes from Ezekiel. So he is, he is giving to them the same judgment and woe that Ezekiel gave to the Jews when they rejected to repent when he ministered to them. So he pronounces a woe upon them. And then in verse 7, what does he do? He said, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And then he goes right next door into the home of a Greek worshiper of God Tidious Justice, who apparently has come to faith. So he moves right next door. As if to say, you know, you're not going to get rid of me this, this easily. You know, you've basically kind of run me out. You've resisted. You've opposed me. You've blasphemed. But he moves right next door and continues his ministry. Only this time, primarily to Gentiles. He doesn't go back and minister in the synagogue again, apparently. And if you look at verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, Believed in the Lord with all of his household. So you start to see some fruit. 
And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. That would be the Gentile or the Greek Corinthians. So Paul starts to see fruit. And you know, God encourages us by fruit in our lives. And this is one of the things that I think for the Apostle Paul, because Athens was kind of a dry hole. You go out and you drill for oil, you hit a dry hole. Athens was kind of a dry hole. But he's coming now to Corinth and suddenly the Gospel starts bearing fruit. That's encouraging him. He came in weakness, fear, and much trembling, but now he's beginning to to be revived, I think, in his spirit because God is granting to him a harvest. God is causing the growth. And what's really interesting is that one of the men who come to faith is a very important man in the city. His name is Erastus. And later on, when Paul writes his letter to the church at Rome, he's, he's parting on, passing on the greetings from the saints in, in Corinth, and he mentions Erastus. And there in Romans 16.23, he refers to Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Well, they have uncovered this stone that's in Latin, and it says Erastus, upper left. If you, kind of, you can kind of make out some of the letters. Erastus for the idolship, which was the title of the position he was given in Corinth, lay this pavement with his own funds or at his own expense. That's what that is saying. And most scholars believe that's the very same Erastus that Paul is referring to later when he writes his letter to Rome. Just an incredible thing of just... uh, how God, even though when he wrote to Corinth, he says, not many noble are saved. Well, there's a few. And Erastus was one of them, apparently. So God is encouraging him by giving him uh, an amazing harvest. And we see that Erastus uh, was one of those guys who apparently came to faith in Christ. And then in verses 9-11, through 11, we find that uh, to further encourage Paul, who came to the city in weakness, fear, and much trembling, He gives him a vision in the night to continue to encourage him in the ministry there. And he says in verse uh, 9, the Lord said to Paul in the night in a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. And then he settled there for a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. So now, for further encouragement, some of it was the coming of Silas and Timothy. Some of it was just the the monetary funds that came so he could uh, begin to devote himself full-time for the ministry. And then the fruitfulness that came from that. So the Lord is encouraging Paul in the ministry there. And then he receives this vision at night. And notice the first thing he says to him is, don't be afraid. And what's important to observe about this is that in the Greek, this is a present tense prohibition, which means that stop doing what you're doing. In other words, Paul was afraid. He was experiencing fear. And Jesus says, Paul, you're afraid. Stop it. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. 
And it really speaks again to His humanity. But my, my, what, what comforting words. Are, are we not a fretful, worrying, stressful people at times? We worry about this. We get full of anxiety about that. We worry about the future. We don't know about our circumstances. And we like the, the apostles sometimes can just be weighed down by the, by worry like a millstone hanging around us. Our health issues, finance issues. And yet the, the Lord Jesus says the same thing to us in the Word of God that He says, that He said to Paul, fear not. And throughout the Scriptures, you can trace it out. Over and over and over again, God had to encourage His servants, fear not. To Joshua, to Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the women at the tomb, on and on, Jesus has to come and say to His his followers, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Be anxious for nothing. Because He wants us to walk in faith and trust to be filled with His peace and confidence that He's in control. And there's a sense in which we need this same encouragement and we can echo it in our own hearts if we listen to how Christ encouraged His Apostle. From there on, He went on to say, but uh, go on speaking and do not be silent. Wow. See, Paul was intimidated sometimes by maybe the struggles of the ministry. Maybe by the opposition. Well, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm going to put my light under the, the bushel basket. And we're all tempted when we're around unbelievers that are so open and flaunt their sin or their unbelief to just pull it in and just be quiet. And Paul had to hear those words from Christ. Don't be silent. Speak out. Speak out. Don't rely on your own wisdom. Don't rely on man's persuasive words of wisdom, but rely on the power of God. And I think that's a good encouragement for us because sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we get intimidated. And sometimes we don't even want to let people know that we're a Christian at work. Or sometimes we don't even want them to know that, that we believe that God created all things, that we don't believe in evolution, or that we don't, we do not believe that it's right to take the life of an unborn child in the womb. And I think what the Lord is encouraging with is continue to speak. Do not be silent. Speak out. And I think the church needs to hear that. We need to be encouraged. And the Lord speaks that to us this morning as well. The third part of the vision in verse 10 is I am with you. I am with you. Wow. Reminds us of the Great Commission where Jesus told His disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A lot of times we feel alone. A lot of times we feel abandoned by the Lord. Sometimes we just don't see His presence we don't feel it. We don't see how things are working out for our good. And we need to hear the Lord Jesus speak to our hearts, I am with you. I am with you. He had to tell that to Jacob. He had to tell it to Gideon when he's, oh, 
fearful about going out and fight against the, the Midianites. He had to say the same thing to Isaiah. And Christ had to say the same thing to His disciples. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxiously looking about you, for I am your God. This is Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah needed that. Jeremiah needed it. Christ's disciples needed it. Sometimes we need to be encouraged from the Lord. And you will find it in His Word when you run across those verses where the Lord promises to His disciples just like He promised and told Paul, I am with you. I am with you. And when you believe the Word, then you can draw the comfort into your soul. How many times have you read Psalm 23 and you're struggling because of all the hardships in your life and then you run across verse 4 where David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. And we need to hear that. That the Lord is with you. Just as He promised in Hebrews 13, that I will never leave you nor will I ever forsake you. And there are times when we need to hear that and be encouraged that the Lord is my Helper and I will not be afraid because what can man do to me? When the Lord is telling Paul, I am with you, He's basically saying, look, Trust me. I'm in control of your circumstances. You can find peace in the eye of the storm if you remember that I am with you. I am walking with you. I am with you. And He's always in our boat. In the midst of the raging sea, in the hurricane winds, He's always in the boat. He may seem like He's asleep, but He's in the boat with you. And the winds that threaten the boat to capsize it are the very same winds that can propel it forward. And God can give us this night vision gift where we see His light, His presence in the midst of our darkness. And when we walk by faith and trust in the promises of His Word, then we can hear Him say, I am with you and find comfort in our difficult times. And then He says, no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. I have many of the elect. Many that I will call. So stay there, Paul. Don't leave. No one's going to attack you and harm you. What a tremendous promise. Because of all the physical abuse he's received so far. But it won't take place in Corinth because God will protect him. And so the Lord just really encourages him with, with all of these additional chosen ones that He's going to call by His grace into the church. So stay there and preach and teach. I'm with you. No one will attack you in order to harm you. So He stays there for a year and six months. So He's changing His philosophy. Before He would go for a few weeks or a few months and then He would move on. But after this night vision, this gift of this night vision, you know, those... You know, the, the night vision goggles that you can actually see in the dark. This is basically what the Lord has given the Apostle Paul. 
in the middle of the darkness of Corinth to see the light of Christ's presence and to be encouraged from that to continue to preach and teach. So he stays there for a year and a half. But that's going to be tested real quick. In verses 12, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to, to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are any questions about words and names and your own law, then look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the new leader of the synagogue, and began to beat him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So the Lord has just told Paul, no one's going to attack you. No one's going to harm you. And then he gets arrested. The Jews in the synagogue rise up and they oppose him and they drag him before the Bema seat, the judicial seat there in Corinth. And there they accuse him before Gallio that Paul is breaking the law. Now understand the Jews were a recognized Roman religion. It was protected by Roman law. As long as they didn't cause any trouble, they were protected. But what the Jews are wanting to do is say, look, they're breaking Roman law. This is a, di this is a different religion. You need to punish these people. And Gallio, in the providence of God, puts Christianity as a sect under Judaism and says, look, this is an internal debate that you guys are having. It's not in my jurisdiction. I'm not going to get involved. Y'all deal with it yourselves. And what's so powerful about that is that Gallio gives a legal pronouncement that basically puts Christianity under the protection of Roman law. So that now the proconsul has basically said that's an internal matter. And it, and it lends uh, credence to the notion of Christianity at least for a while, being under some protection in Greece because it's just viewed as a subset of the Jewish religion. Right or wrong, obviously it's coming out of Judaism, but it grants them legal protection. And so Christ has fulfilled His promise. They brought Him before Gallio so that He would be beaten or abused, but God protected Him. He said, I will protect you. And in doing that, Christianity through all of this difficulty and this, this uh, ordeal actually comes out safer and more protected by the grace of God. Sometimes you don't understand providence when you're in the middle of it. And that's why we have to remember the words of John Flavel who said providence is better read like you read Hebrew backwards. And it's usually after we get through the event and we look backwards, then we can see the hand of providence and see the blessing that comes from it. I close with this. They have, archaeologists have, have uncovered the Bema. And this is actually where Gallio was sitting up on top. Paul was brought in front of this stage in the city of Corinth. This is the actual post where they would, they would tie the accused or prisoners or whoever was on, uh, being accused, 
as they stand before Gallio up on, on the, uh, the, uh, the Bema judgment seat, which is up above. And you can see in this, um, there it is, and it's actually called the Bema. If you look on the far left, where this is actually located, is right here. It's in the middle of this uh, Agora. But that's where the judgment seat was. That's where Paul was taken in front of it. And they've excavated all of that. They've even uncovered a, uh, an inscription with Gallio's name on it to confirm that he was the proconsul of Achaia in this very same year. He only held this position for about a year. But he was the proconsul when Paul was there. All the chronology, all the dates match perfectly. So this is Paul's ministry in, uh, in Corinth. He goes in weak, discouraged, fear, full of trembling, and the Lord encourages him through not only this night vision, but all the ways that Silas and Timothy and the financial help and the fruit brought encouragement to his heart and his soul. Well, as we go through our challenging times, uh, let us remember the night vision and remember the other ways that God encouraged Paul. Because the Lord can encourage us in the same way if we look to His promises and let the Lord speak those wonderful uh, pieces of grace into our soul that we can see in the darkness with night vision and see His glory and His presence with us. So may the Lord encourage us as well. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You for this um, kind of a whirlwind trip through Corinth. Uh, but Lord, so many opportunities to see Your grace, Your power, Your comfort, uh, building up this man of God who for whatever reason was probably discouraged and fearful and trembled at the prospects of what he would face in such a, a difficult ministry. And Lord, many of our lives and our ministries are burdened down with similar stresses and worries and sometimes we feel fearful and full of trembling. But Lord, we thank You that as You encourage the Apostle Paul so You can encourage us. That You're always with us. That we should not fear because You're sovereign and in control. That You will protect us. You will guide us. That You're always in the boat with us. And Lord, may that encourage our hearts with that sense of night vision that the Spirit of God gives to us in the Word of God as we see Your promises and see Your glorious presence even in the midst of our darkness. So Lord, encourage us in that way we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.